Hello, friends. We are back of episode 133 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. This is your weekly audio podcast where we give you the latest happenings and awesome resources being shared on ourweekly.org every single week. My name is Eric Nance. I'm your host, and I'm delighted to have you join us and listening from wherever you are around the world. And I'm joined by my awesome co-host, who's been super busy as well, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, Eric. Uh, I finally did it. I migrated my company's blog from Distill to Quarto this past week. Woohoo! So. Exciting! How, how did it go? Were there some uh, gotchas along the way, or was it pretty smooth? Pretty smooth. The only gotcha was uh, on freezing some of the assets so, such that when I go to sort of re-render a new post, it doesn't also render all the old posts as well and take way more time than it needs to take. Yeah, that is an awesome feature. It does take a little bit of getting your head around, but I've used that quite effectively. A lot of my uh, website development recently with Cordo, which I've been knee-deep in recently, especially with that little workshop we have coming up soon. So with that said, we know we could, we'll have maybe more to say about Cordo in a little bit, but let's get right into this week's issue, which has been curated by a longtime Arguki curator, Ryo Nakakawara, and he had tremendous help, as always, from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. You know, we've, been ha- we've had the pleasure, Mike, of covering these newer developments or ways that our users and data scientists are leveraging maybe newer ideas or newer to them. And it tends to spread a little bit over time. I think we're seeing that happen. Um, and if you've been listening, especially in the last few weeks, you know that a good friend of ours and a frequent highlight appearer, uh, Bruno Rodriguez, has been on this uh, very interesting exercise of leveraging Nick's package management for his reproducible R workflows. Well, guess what? He is not the only one exploring this in the realms of R and data science. Our first highlight comes to us from Laszlo Kupsik. Hopefully I got that right. Where he has a great blog post on what can happen when you are installing packages, especially on a Linux environment, and how NixOS could be a very attractive alternative to getting you over that hump for your package and environment reproducibility. You, if you're using R on Windows or Mac OS, you might never really get bit by some of these things. But for somebody that's using R routinely on a Linux HPC environment or maybe in custom cloud environments with you know custom VPSs spun up on the major cloud providers, that means you are running um, your R installation on Linux. Now, if you're installing certain packages, it's not all of them, but there's a good chunk of them, you may get a very cryptic error that the package either could not install or it looks like it installed, but then when you try to load it, it gets mad at you about missing some system library. That can be tedious. It can feel quite a bit like whack-a-mole. But this post by Laszlo um, does a great job of showing you kind of the ways that Nix can help you set yourself up for success in these situations. And this is a very practical blog post, and it's not going to hold your hand all the way with respect to Nix itself. That's where a great compliment to this would be the aforementioned post that we've highlighted previously from Bruno Rodriguez. But um, Lazlo starts off 
with talking about maybe some packages that could have some issues. And admittedly, this first one that ends up in the post here gives me um, a little bit of flashbacks of not-so-kind variety. He is installing an R Oracle package, the interface with the Oracle <laughs> database in R, which has its own little bit of gotchas with its own um, binaries that are needed and also Java requirements and whatnot. That one he is able to solve. It took a little bit of digging at first because it depends on what's called a non-free library from Oracle themselves. But he is able to update his Nix configuration actually after he submitted an issue to the Nix uh, package maintainers to get something fixed where now it does install. So there is a lot of movement in this space, but there are other packages that Lazo highlights here such as the arrow package. This is, if you're not aware, the uh, front end to leverage arrow data sets, Apache arrow, using modern C++ libraries and whatnot. He's able to get that installed in this Nix setup right off the bat. Very easy to maintain. And again, all reproducible via these text files um, that are created that will have all the package names as a list. And then the Nix routines will grab that file and then install them one by one and then as it's finishing the installation you get what's called a development shell where you could basically cd into this activate it and it's not too dissimilar to what you might see with virtual environments and things like python where now that installation of r but also all those system libraries that are dependencies of some of these packages like that aforementioned our Oracle table, database package, and others, it's all self-contained. His host system is not polluted by any of this, which is really nice, especially when you have to deal with an R package that depends on Java, because I have nuked many previous Linux uh, installs on my home network here because I had to do some esoteric Java installation, and then I couldn't get another program to work, and I was like, what do I do? This is, this is a nightmare. Well, in 2023, with things like Nix OS and Nix, the Nix package management system, these are hopefully going to be a thing of the past. It's not all roses and unicorns here because the post concludes with his last uh, package example here called Altair, which actually does depend on Python because it's leveraging the reticulate package from R to interface with Python. Unfortunately... This did not work because apparently it it is still, even though it's meant to be self-contained, it may be a bug of a reticulate itself. I'm not sure, but it was trying to map to Lorenzo's uh, system-wide Python library and not the one that would have been in the Nix OS or the Nix uh, environment shell itself. So he's got, he did a little troubleshooting in there. You can read the rest of the blog post, which it sounds like that might not be a completely solved issues so we're still moving fast here this is still early days of us in data science adopting nix to manage you know package reproducibility and environment you know installations but in any event lazo does a tremendous job walking us down this very practical approach of leveraging nix for these package installation issues which if you've used r on linux at any point in time I would imagine you've encountered at least one or two installation errors that had you scratching your head and figuring out, what in the world do I do about this? 
So let's see how far this takes us. I'd imagine we're going to be seeing a few more posts in future R Weekly episodes that are talking about Nick's OS and Nick's package management to see how far we can take for package reproducibility and also environment reproducibility. So Mike, um, it sounds like this may have brought you some flashbacks too in some of your early days of installing packages. Is that right? Oh yeah. Well, especially when you've been working uh, on Windows for the majority of your career, I would argue that you've probably run into just as many package installation issues on a Windows OS as you would on a Linux OS, if not more. But I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're different, right? And it appears that Bruno Rodriguez has has sort of relit a fire underneath uh, the Nix project, at least when it comes to maybe its applicability to the R community. And, and you know, like you said, I got the heebie-jeebies seeing Laszlo trying to install an Oracle-related package, and it reminds me of when I used to have Shiny apps, I'm not proud of this, that were querying Microsoft Access databases. It's the only database the client had. Could only run those on 32-bit systems. It was very strange. <laughs> Oh, if we had video for for this podcast, the, the folks would love to see your face right now, Eric. But it, it was it was brutal. Fortunately, we have got off got off uh, the the Microsoft Access and migrated that client up to the cloud. And those shiny apps, much more performant now. But it it did uh, send some shutters down my my spine seeing Oracle uh, databases getting mentioned here. So you know I. For one, I'm the first person who's really interested in, in new technologies, especially when it comes to ways to improve uh, our workflows within the R ecosystem, and especially when it comes to reproducibility, right? So so I think the Nix project is, is really intriguing, but there's also half of me that says you can pry my Docker files from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I have uh, invested so much time and effort trying to learn Docker over the past many years uh, and, and the next project coming along here and sort of simplifying parts of, I think it probably simplifies some parts of the, the whole Docker framework, but probably makes uh, introduces some complexities that, that Docker does a, a better job of in certain areas. So I think there's some trade-offs there, but it's, you know, it's great to have choice. It's great to have options. And like you said, Lazlo was able to install almost all the packages that he was trying to install, which, which admittedly he was picking really tricky packages to try to install packages with known installation issues. The only one he wasn't able to install was Altair, which I think is a data visualization library um, that really relies heavily on a Python installation as well. So I think there's a dependency there on the reticulate package, which, you know, isn't, I guess, a huge surprise that that one would be one that would, would hang Laszlo up a little bit because that's when you're getting into a, a whole nother language, right? A whole nother dependency on, on Python. So Laszlo uh, gives a nice shout out to, to the R2U project as well at the beginning of this blog post, which I'm a huge fan of. So I'll, I'll re-shout it out. But noted that that only supports downloads from CRAN and Bioconductor. So if you were trying to install a package from GitHub, for example, Nix would provide you the ability to do that where R2U doesn't necessarily provide the ability to do that currently. Um, and the, the first package that Laszlo attempted to install was the Arrow package, which has some hardcore C++ dependencies, I believe, to work with data 
on disc at lightning speeds, um, but Nix had had no trouble with it at all. So it was really nice to see uh, how well Nix handled most of the package installs here. And uh, again, a pretty technical blog post. Uh, I think Laszlo sort of gives us gives us the highlights and doesn't necessarily dive too deep into Nix and just sort of shows some of the functionality that's at play here. So if you are also interested in the work that Bruno Rodriguez is doing and the work that Laszlo is doing uh, in terms of sort of bridging the gap between the Knicks community and the art community. This is definitely one to check out. Yeah, I'm intrigued by how far this goes, but I do think, you know, if you have a reproducibility workflow that's working for you from both a, you know, producing the actual, reproducing the actual results and your development environment, there is, I mean, I'd say go with what works. Um, in fact, a little behind the scenes info for all of you, but when I'm building with Mike the uh, workshop materials, I'm building them in Docker containers because like you said, Mike, I've invested a lot of hours and frankly, a lot of years into this workflow. But I think in order for me to fully appreciate where Nix is going, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm very intrigued by reading everything that's been happening in this space. Once I dive into it, then I'll have a better informed opinion of really comparing them for my workflows. Can in, like can Nix this workflow give me the same idea of having a very kind of lift and shift mindset for these development environments I do for my R projects, whether it's a shiny app and R package development or reproducible analysis, and be able to share that not only to future me, so to speak, but also to any collaborators as well. What does that upfront effort look like for others? I think that's the stuff that I'm going to be intrigued in in trying out. Now, there are limitations where, frankly, at my day job, there will be absolutely nobody using Nix right now. My uh, Linux admins, um, it's hard enough just getting containers up and running. So we're going to go with that for the for the short term. But, you know, I'm going to be watching this space quite closely. And I do have, you know, good friends in the Linux community that have gone full bore into Nix and Nix OS for a lot of their um, not only explorations of, you know, new packages and new um, routines in Linux itself, but even their own production setups are now backed by Nix because they can try things out and then blow it away. But again, you could do the same thing with Docker as well. So it's really, you know... They're not the same. They're definitely not the same, but the principles are pretty similar. So I guess we'll see where it goes, but it's a fun space to watch nonetheless. Definitely. And I think it's good to have some competition for Docker as well to keep everybody honest. Yeah, they, they, they could use they could use a little bit of that. But yeah, this space is, is moving quite fast. know one way to make code fast mike what's that uh write machine code zeros and ones yeah but who does that um we we have something else in between right and that's where our next highlight comes in where uh fellow our weekly curator jonathan carroll is back with what i'm going to call a very development centric blog post on his adventures with one of those intermediate languages that actually has a lot of precedence in the R language itself, and that is wrapping C code into an R package. Now, this is certainly not a radically new concept. This has actually been going on for years in the community, 
But also, did you know that R is not just written in R itself? R also has functions that have their roots in, wait for it, Fortran. Props to all the Fortran pros out there. I did a little bit in grad school, but I admit it did not stick very well. But not just Fortran, also C. So there, a lot of times you'll encounter this when you're trying to debug something and maybe you narrowed it down to trying to figure out why does that built-in function not work the way I expect. You go down the rabbit hole a little bit and eventually you find a piece of code where it is trying to source something internal to R itself. And you can't really see what that function looks like. Well, what um, John does right off the bat is showing an example how a function about row names eventually leads to a C code library, which you can kind of see there is a reference to it in your debugging session, but you can't actually get to it. And that's where he showcases an example of the prior package. I believe that's written by Hadley Wickham. I'll have to double check, of course. But that has a function called show C source, where he's able to see that row name like function and opens up a browser with the GitHub mirror of the R source code. I believe that's been maintained by Winston Chang, if I'm not mistaken. I, I'd have to double check on that. Um, but that will eventually find this attribute C file, where then he can see what this short row names function actually does. Now, that's one thing to know what R is built in with C and how to maybe get to that eventually. But apparently this blog post was inspired by a real project where he had a collaborator that had this great C code that was doing a, an algorithm or a calculation. And they wanted it a way to call it from R itself, but also a way to still execute it as its own native function outside of R. That's where it gets pretty interesting. So then John walks us through making an example inspired by this with calculating Pythagorean triples. This is shades to your geometry days, if you remember those. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's literally the Pythagorean theorem, which I think in a couple years my son's going to be learning in middle school, but I'll have to brush up on that <laughs> pretty soon. But he wrote some C code to do that calculation to find the minimum I believe the minimum vert number of uh, that can be used in those formulas. And it's not meant to be a, entirely a C tutorial, but once John has this code, he verifies it works on his system setup. How do we get this into an R package? Well, there's a couple ways to scaffold it. So one way is to use RStudio. If you're using RStudio's IDE itself, there is a way to build a package to create it as a package involving C code. It will give you some helpers along the way. You might have to change a few things afterwards, but it gets you up and running pretty quickly. Another approach is the use this package, where you can use a function called use underscore C, which will set up a package boilerplate with C code. Again, you might have to modify a couple things here and there to get it going, but once you have that foundation, you are you are up and running with actually implementing the function that you, or in this case, John created with the C code. Now, there are a few nuggets here, which again, I'm not gonna pretend to understand all of it, but there are a little bit of R specific things you have to do for this. You have to import 
some additional libraries that R has under the hood to help, I believe, with the handoff between C and R code. I think they're called internals or other header files. Again, this is coming from someone that doesn't know C very well. My first programming language is Java, and boy, was that a mistake. But we're not here to we're not here to rant about Java. That's for another day. And then there are some considerations that you need in place for returning the value sexp, which I'm not quite sure what that means. I'm sure I'll look it up afterwards. But you have to build that in for the result of your function, and then returning that. And then as he debugs this, he's able to see that, hey, you know what? I can load my package. I can run the triangles function with a number, get a nice data frame back of the different variable values, and there's some, and that works great. Now, they want, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, they want to be able to run this outside of R as well. So I believe they built in a... a a version of the function that could handle that piece of it. I'm not as familiar running C code on its own, but there are ways to do that as well. And then once you have that bundle, there are a few middle additional hoops to jump through with respect to declaring, I believe, object types, and then compiling things into lists, and then making sure your classes are defined correctly. Even with things like protect and unprotect, which apparently is a more rigid uh, structure of C code. I've actually heard similar things with Rust. You have to be pretty careful of object types in Rust as well. Um, but the example has all the ways that John iteratively built this, uh, this prototype package. So you can kind of see for yourself all the different logistics along the way. And then there are some additional bookkeeping to do if you wanted to pass CRAN checks, if you wanted to submit this to CRAN. Apparently, you have to create an initial initialization file where you declare types of variables or external pointers, I believe. Again, this is all stuff that's new to me. But the value of this blog post, again, it reads very much like a development journey here. And it is assembling information that has been talked about in previous posts I believe uh, he references a blog post from Davis Vaughn, who I believe is one of the engineers at Posit, as well as another um, good friend of our weekly uh, frequent contributor, Cool But Useless. He's got a few adventures in this uh, realm as well. So there's lots of links to those posts as well. But if you're getting new, t- if you're new to this and you have a situation where maybe it, either you or a collaborator has built C code that you want to have an R interface for. And this happened um, at the day job a couple years ago. We had a um, person write an optimization function in C, and they had absolutely no clue how to get into R. They're like, well, it works if you just run the C binary. Well, okay, fine, but you want this in the Shiny app. I got to know how to put this in an R package. So this would have been really helpful back then. But I funneled my way through it, and we eventually got it running. So... This is going to become, well, it's already pretty common if you want to highly perform and code. So it's great to see kind of, again, the step-by-step approach that Jonathan takes here. So, yeah, if you like your geometry and you like you learning about C and how interfaces are, definitely check out the rest of John's post here because there's a lot of information to sink your teeth into. So, Mike, what uh, geometry function are you going to write C code for next? So, Eric, you know, some of the uh, the C code here doesn't look too bad. 
in my opinion. It's something that I guess I've never really looked at before. Um, but there's if statements, there's double equal signs for logical comparison. There's a lot of question marks in the code, though, which is, is interesting to me. Um, I did take a look quickly into what that S-E-X-P stands for, and it stands for S-Expression. And there's actually a section of Advanced R uh, in Hadley Wickham's Advanced R book that talks about how any C code you write needs to return an S-Expression, essentially, for R to be able to handle it, I believe. So that's what that's all about. Uh, it's amazing that there is a function from useThis called useC that creates a lot of the scaffolding that you'll need for including C code in your R package. And you know, I think in terms of Jonathan's use case here, right, he didn't want to necessarily have to translate code from one language to another when all of the code was in C was was already written and already working fine. Uh, so it is nice that we do have the ability to essentially call C code from the R programming language. Um, and Jonathan made it sound like, I don't know if he was alluding to this or if I'm just sort of reading too much in between the lines, but, but maybe R could replace its Fortran code with something else in the future. I'm not sure if that's the case, but it would be interesting uh, if that does happen because, you know, there is this sort of movement towards getting as much performance as possible out of your programming language. And I don't know if Fortran necessarily helps that case or hurts that case. It's not a language that I've had a lot of experience with, but I do know that, as Jonathan notes, that R does depend on Fortran in, in places. And didn't the Shiny project get rewritten somewhat in the past year or two in, in TypeScript? Didn't they migrate a lot of the uh, JavaScript code that, to, to TypeScript right. yeah. for, for those reasons, yeah, right? Yeah. So I don't know how much of an undertaking it would be to actually, it'd be interesting to me to, to sort of dive into how much of the core R code has been rewritten since its inception, I, I imagine, a ton. But I'd be curious to see if uh, any changes sort of in the under-the-hood under languages that, that got employed in terms of CE and Fortran and things like that, um, any major changes and when those those happened and why. It'd be an interesting uh, history lesson into what's what's under the hood in R. So really interesting post uh, from, from Jonathan. I think he always puts together interesting posts. It's one that I had to read a couple times to, to get my head around, um, but I could certainly imagine myself uh, in the future running into a consulting engagement where there's some C code that exists uh, that folks are looking to, to repurpose in R, and it's nice to know that we may not necessarily need to reinvent the wheel to do that. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with a couple of people that were very, very excited to, you know, leverage C, C++, other languages to get that last bit of performance eked out and really actually very significant gains from it. So I think the one of the reasons I love doing our projects the most is that I get to interface it with so many other things. And yeah, high performing code is, is definitely one of those. It's just one that I don't have as much exposure to but at the same time i can greatly appreciate those that have been on this journey well longer than me but yeah jonathan's post is a great way for me to get a little hey if you're in this situation here's how he approached it this is how i can approach it and those ideas would also work very well with c plus plus and yes the new up-and-comer we've heard a lot about is rust as well so there's lots of Lots of great opportunities for optimization here. And it's, yeah, it's exciting to see, just like what we talked about in the first highlight, people optimizing their analytical environment. So 
optimize all the things, I guess, right? <laughs> it never stops. And create an R package while you're at it. Why not, right? And in fact, that's a perfect lead into our last highlight today because most of you may think, oh, if I'm going to create an R package, it's got to do some very fancy, you know, algorithm, you know, new machine learning modeling approach or anything like that. You know, there is a very important category of packages to help with the idea of both an education and frankly, awareness standpoint. And that is packages that are surfacing novel data themselves. And Mike, you have going to lead us through this last highlight here where we got a very important package called Refugees that is living this mindset right now. Yes, this is a nice data package that makes it really easy to work with international refugee statistics. You don't have to reach out to a database or an API or work with flat files or anything like that. Uh, the United Nations Refugee Agency published this blog post on the origins of the new Refugee R package and how to leverage it yourself. Um, they also have a, a really nice interactive data explorer as well that allows you to do some drag and drop, point and click, uh, create some bar charts, line charts, tables with the underlying data uh, that exists in this refugee package right on their website. If you want to try it out, take a look at the data on their website first before you install this package locally to work with the data. I have to imagine that that data packages like this are, are a little tricky because you, you have to update the package every time the data changes, right? It's not wrapping an API. It's, it's legitimately packaging a data set, a lot like Tidy Tuesday does, I believe. Um, so users wanting to analyze new data would have to update the version of the R package to get access to the latest data. But I don't, I don't know how often the data itself changes. It might be uh, you know annually or it might be even less frequent. Than that, um, but this is—it's really nice that they have put this package together to make it as easy as possible for folks to leverage this refugee statistics data. And, and like you said, Eric, there is an element of, of awareness as well. So it's nice to sort of try to make this data as easily accessible as possible. And you know, beyond that, you, you got to love open source because there is a. UNHCR themes are package for making ggplots that make the United Nation, uh, the United Nations branding style uh, really easily accessible and make it easy to stick that right on top of your ggplot2 charts. And the, the charts that they've made in the blog post, mostly with ggplot2 and this theme tacked on to the end, are really visually appealing. They're really nice, uh, especially the last chart that has bars that diverge from the center of the chart to show the relative proportions of individuals who have been helped uh, by the UNHCR, broken out by age bracket and gender. This is a really nice walkthrough. It's a, a really nice uh, announcement of this new Refugees R package. So if you're someone that, that works in this domain or is interested in this domain, right? You, you don't necessarily need to contribute uh, your, your money to some of these causes if you are someone who has other resources and other skill sets to be able to contribute. So perhaps uh, this is an area where, where you may be able to to help out. So it seems like uh, the UNHCR is, is pretty data savvy. Um, so I would certainly recommend taking a look at this blog post and, and seeing uh, how you may be able to leverage the data that they've put together for good. Yeah, I, I really like the not only the the clean, you know, blog posts here of how with the code examples to walk you through it really quickly. 
this whole project looks very modern. I mean, it's rare that you see in a blog post like this, they are saying, oh, you got a couple of methods to install the package, including from pack itself. Like that, that, that was a nice little touch. Like I, I don't know why I tend to notice, like, are they using like what I'll call the more traditional methods? Or are they trying to modern their approach? So that, as well as the theme package that they have for the ggplots, yeah, that, that's a nice touch. That, that adds up. It really shows that they have a lot of attention to detail here. I think that is really, really slick. So I'm, I'm very happy to see this in action. And what I'll do as well, in addition to what we have in this post, of course, is I'll put a link in the chap in the supplements of the podcast show notes to um, the second edition of the R Packages book that's authored by Jenny Bryan and Hadley Wickham. They have a chapter on data uh, inside packages. If you want to try this on your own, that's a great place to start. I've actually had a hand in trying this out a little bit myself. And uh, actually, the um, the package we're making for our app, workshop app actually has data embedded inside too that I may eventually spin off into its own package because why not open source? Um, that would be fun. So this is a great way to showcase how you might put some narrative around that package, but also really good quality here. And yeah, congratulations to the authors on really nice job here. But who else has done a great job here? That's our curator, Rio, because he's put together a fantastic issue of our weekly. And we don't have, obviously, infinite time to talk about every single additional post here. We're going to talk about a couple additional finds here. And for me... You know, we've we've had great enthusiasm about how Quartal is revolutionizing a lot of the ways we produce, um, you know, literate documents, literate programming documents, websites, presentations, and the like. Well, I'm happy to say that there is a, a there is a great workflow that has been present in our Markdown, and in particular the Sharingan slide format, called Flipbook R that was originally authored by Gina Reynolds, which I believe was presented at our at a, studio conference a couple of years ago. Well, Kieran Healy has had a hand in converting that in a very early version to Quarto itself. So what is Flipbook R? Well, it was a way for you to have in a presentation, a way to kind of build step-by-step the code that maybe produces maybe a um, analysis or more commonly a visualization and you could quickly see say in the case of a ggplot going from like the base canvas to adding layers to adding theme options and literally as if you were doing the traditional flipbooks in the old days with photos like animation kind of seeing that evolution of a plot or in that or maybe an analysis output now you can do that in quarto as well so it may be it's a great win for teaching a concept especially a visual concept so if you're in the quartal space and you miss being able to do that flipbook-like syntax, um, have a look at Kieran's post here because it is really fun to do once you get the hang of it. I found a blog post uh, called Model Life Tables, and, and there's apparently a lots of United Nations content this week. So this is a blog post that's really visual, has some really cool tables, charts, animated tables, even a shiny app embedded into this post, I think, as maybe an iframe, which is really cool. So if you are, especially in the insurance space, uh, this may be one that would be of interest to you. Nice, nice. That does remind me way back in in Eric's early days, if you want to go on the real big way back machine, many people thought it'd be a good actuary. And, and I, I didn't really pursue that path. But yeah, there's lots of people that 
are in the art community that are in that space. So yeah, that's a, that's a great find as well. And there's a whole bunch of additional finds here, but where do you go for that? We go to artweekly.org, of course, where we have the latest issue right on the front page. So you can see all the latest new packages, updated packages, additional tutorials across a whole range of data science workflows right at your fingertips. And of course, this is a community project through and through. There are no sponsors for our weekly. It is, if you want to call it a sponsor, it's all of you out there. And the best way to help is by sending your finds of, say, a new package, a new blog post, a new tutorial. Send us a pull request on the upcoming issue draft. You can find all the details to do that at the aforementioned rweekly.org as well. And then also, we love to hear from you, um, especially on this little humble podcast here. You have a couple ways of doing that. You can use the contact page, which is in the episode show notes. That you can boot up very quickly and send your feedback. We'd greatly appreciate it. And also, you can get in touch with us via a modern podcast app, such as Podverse or Fountain or Castomatic, and send us a fun little boost along the way. Or you could do that directly in the podcast index itself, where our weekly is found alongside many other excellent podcasts out there. And in terms of feedback, I have heard from a very prominent member of the community about opportunities to perhaps put this podcast on additional services. We will take that into consideration, but I will say that um, it is a very interesting time in the podcasting space. And one thing I want to make sure is that this content here on R Weekly stays the way that I and Mike produce it. And there is a little nuance behind that, but we will definitely discuss internally and we'll definitely make, make sure we consider all of our options here. But in any event, if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can find me sporadically on whatever the thing is called um, at the RCAS on, I'm still going to call it Twitter, but you're more often going to find me on Mastodon where I'm at our podcast at podcastindex.social. A uh, little mini shout out again to Bruno. Apparently I gave him a cool little resource for his Windows adventures. And good luck with that because you'll probably need it. But I think the framework I sent you is going to get you along the way pretty well. So Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Yes, so you can probably reach me best on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. And it's always great to hear from, from folks in the community. So thank you to, to Jenny Bryan for her input. Thank you for last week to, to Bruno Rodriguez for saying that he really enjoyed the bloopers section at the end. Uh, I hope I don't make the bloopers this week, but I have a pretty bad feeling about it. And thanks to Isabella Velasquez as well for uh, her Toot, I guess, on Mastodon, uh, thanking us for, for highlighting the post and saying that target equals blank always. Live it. I live it every day, buddy. Yeah. Every yes. time I make a chordal doc or a report, that is all, all the way, all standard. Well, it, it, we could talk, go for hours here, but we got a close up shop here. But it's been a pleasure once again recording with you, Mike. And we will be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week what else has done a great job here well rio's done a great job curating this uh whole um try that again great post by lorenzo and i am very intrigued by what what comes next in this um oh it's not lorenzo it's lazlo (laughs) okay let me okay let me frame that again Good catch. Yep, yep.
why write R code when you could write Python that's more performant, or why write Python when you could write C code that's more performant, and then you know why write C code when you can you know <laughs> get on the bare metal <laughs> or something like that. To uh, I, I don't know, it's early. Sorry, we gotta cut. We gotta cut that part. All right, let me. <laughs> We, you, you have your outtake oh, for today. You, you nailed that. <laughs> yeah.